Hello, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for joining us. We're here to discuss the challenges and solutions surrounding AI and big data. We have we have with us today Hub Security's very own uh, CRO David Hochhauser, alongside a number of amazing industry experts, including Nitin Adowal, Priyanka Telang, Doron Reuter, uh, Dr. Sanjeev Chavi, and uh, Siddharth Kumar. Thank you all for being with us today. Um, we'll kick off our webinar with a brief introduction from David Ockhauser, and then we'll allow panelists to each uh, briefly introduce themselves. Afterwards, we'll get into a bit deeper discussion about AI and big data, including challenges, solutions, and of course, cybersecurity. Um, and like always, we leave time at the end for a short, for at the end of our discussion for a short Q&A. If you have any questions throughout the discussion, feel free to drop them below in the Q&A section and we'll get, them, we'll get to them later on. Um, now we have an impressive lineup of panelists tonight and we're really excited to have all of them introduce themselves, but we'll start with a few words from David Hochhauser, Chief Revenue Officer for Hub Security, and then we'll follow up with uh, the panelists. Um, David, go ahead. Okay, hey, thanks, thanks, Doran. Um, I said, I'm Dave Hockhauser, the Chief Revenue Officer for Hub Security. And just briefly, so we're a cybersecurity company uh, that we design extremely secure computing platforms. And I just wanna welcome everyone to what I think will be a fascinating discussion. Um, I just wanna take my two minutes to explain kind of why we're holding this session. Um, and then we'll keep most of the session focused on our expert guests on AI and uh, machine learning and some thoughts around uh, security around such services as well. Um, so why, why did we hold, why do we convene a session with, with these experts on AI and big data? And first of all, to begin with, um, AI has uh, massive potential. It's just game-changing technology that's coming on very strong. And it's also fueled by a number of other related uh, technologies and innovations going on in, in IoT, 5G, uh, edge and cloud computing, along with a lot of industry specific um, innovation in each of those technologies. And so what you're seeing is the amount of information and computing power um, from all these technologies is, is exploding. Um, so you have 5G bringing data faster. Um, you have IoT bringing more of it from new sources from all over the place. And you have cloud and edge computing. And what's happening there is the computing literally will be everywhere it's needed. And I've seen estimates that predict, you know, over 50% of all computing power will actually be at the edge going forward. Now, underneath all that, so you have all this computing power, all this information. So what you have now is AI and machine learning making sense of all of this information. Um, literally, it's too difficult, obviously, for humans, but they're actually making sense of all of it. And that's what's contributing a lot to all of this drive in AI. And just from a security perspective, since uh, you know that's my, my area of focus, um, this whole rapid pace of new technology coming together is bringing rapidly increasing security and privacy threats and they really do require entirely new cybersecurity approaches to, to, to deal with them and protect it. So I'll give you an idea of the pace of change and what's happening. I've seen projections of spending on AI that it shows the market is at 
$27 billion um, in, was in, at nine, in 2020. And it's growing to 267 billion within a few years by 27, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal growth. So that, that's really what's driving the, you know, the interest and why we're focusing on AI. And so kind of to make sense of it all, we've brought together a panel and we'll really break the discussion kind of in three general categories. So we'll talk about AI as a whole in the market, the overview, um, what are some of the specific industries and trends going on, some of the, the challenges and the different approaches and solutions to AI, um, as well as some of the cybersecurity considerations um, that are around it. So hopefully everybody um, sit back and enjoy and back to you, Duran. Thank you, David. Uh, that was a great start. Um, in addition, we'll start a quick round of introductions. Um, and I think we'll start with Nitin. Um, would you mind giving our listener a bit of background on yourself and your expertise? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, hey everyone, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I'm Nitin Agarwal. I'm currently leading Cloud AI Industry Solution Services team for Google Cloud. I'm based out in Bangalore, India. Uh, I'm in this domain for AI for almost a decade. I'm at Google for the last six years. Uh, my team is actually responsible for building AI ML-based uh, custom solutions for our strategic customers at Google Cloud. So we work with the Fortune 500 industry, ranging from manufacturing industrial to healthcare. So yeah, definitely I'm looking forward to this conversation with, with all these guys. Thank you, Nitin. We're looking forward to hearing more from you um, down the discussion. Uh, Priyanka, if you can uh, continue, that'd be great. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Priyanka Telang, and uh, I am an AI solutions architect uh, and a technical leader in the insights and intelligence labs in IBM Software Labs India. And I have almost uh, two decades of experience around various web technologies, uh, development on cloud and AI since the last five years. And uh, primarily for all my experience, I've been uh, working with the supply chain organizations of the world and building omni-channel experiences for them and inventory visibility solutions on the IBM supply chain platform. And uh, currently I'm leading the uh, infusion of AI and automation technologies into the supply chain um, to basically build self-correcting and resilient supply chains. And uh, of course, uh, you know, I've always been passionate to learn more and give back, um, you know, to the data and AI uh, community uh, with regular lectures and talks like this. So I am thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Priyanka. Uh, great to have you with us. Scott, if you can continue, that'd be great. Hey, guys. Uh, good to be here. And it's a pleasure to be amongst uh, any crowd uh, of panelists and attendees. Uh, I'm Siddharth. I uh, basically started off uh, you know, with my PhD in astrophysics and then moved on to doing data science and human capital management. Uh, I also am fascinated by a lot of things in trading, so I basically then jumped on to trading. And then uh, right now, uh, basically moved on to e-commerce and then I'm, I'm into it currently. Right? Now, so basically you would just look at my background and say, okay, this guy is jumping all over the place. but I'll give you one thing to say, which is that I have essentially done only one thing, which is data science. I've done data science all my life. The common thread is computing, statistics, machine learning, and computer science, right? 
So essentially, the, the whole point is everything comes together with large-scale computing, with complex models. And you know, this was back in sometime in 2015 when I started off this whole process uh, of, of, of applying machine learning to astrophysics. And then here I am today, you know, deploying billions of uh, models every day on AWS. I am running my company quite a bit on that, but, but that's a discussion for another day. But uh, excellent to be here. I am very interested as to how the different fields uh, are being contributed to uh, by data science and, and cybersecurity as well. So pleasure and thank you. Pleasure as always. Thank you, Siddharth. Uh, Doran, take it away. There we go. Hi, my name is Doron Reuter. It's nice to be here with you all. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I am a director within ING's uh, Global Analytics Group. ING is a big Dutch bank. Um, if you've never heard of it, it's uh, one of the top 40 banks in the world. It's based in the Netherlands, but has offices in about 40 different countries around the world. Um, my latest endeavor is um, an exciting uh, venture, which uh, uses cutting-edge AI uh, in the application security space. Um, I'm predominantly busy with that today. Uh, for the last seven years within ING Analytics, I have been part of the core team that scaled the capability within our wholesale bank, going from about five people to 130 people, delivering digital products with embedded machine learning uh, for the use by uh, ING people within ING's wholesale bank um, and our ING wholesale banking clients. And that's the division of ING, which serves corporates and institutions. Uh, so thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, thank you, uh, Sanjeev, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Doran. Uh, I'm sorry, I got your name correctly. That's right. Okay. Yes. Wonderful. So, uh, so thanks for having me here on the uh, discussion on the panel. Right. Thank you to the hub security team and uh, the panelists and the viewers who are part of this particular discussion. So I am Dr. Sanjeev Chaube. I head the big data and advanced analytics uh, practice, basically AI and data science for Vodafone Idea Limited Pan India, right? So that's, uh, uh, so within Vodafone, there are different challenges with respect to customer marketing analytics, right? And uh, identifying different kind of, uh, performing different predictive and advanced analytics in terms of identifying uh, uh, who are the customers, what products can be offered, or what? Uh, how do we identify the pain areas of a customer? How do we identify uh, the sentiments of the customer? So using different kind of structured and unstructured uh, data formats uh, to basically identify, predict, do different kind of uh, segmentations, some kind of uh, predictive recommendation, ultimately focusing on the customer experience and the, the profitability of the organization. These are the two factors that we generally look at when we, are, we look at making any AIML model because that's the strategy, right? So how do you use AIML model to generate uh, a, a, a revenue for the organization or save the cost or operational efficiency, right? Different models that you make basically emerge from these requirements. So this is what we do. We build different kind of predictive models, advanced analytics models to support organizational strategy. So thank you so much again for having me here thank you all for the introductions um we'll move to the next step and then start a discussion with kind of a
broad overview of uh, AI market and some technology overview. Um, Silhart, I'd like to start with you. Um, like to ask how, how do applications of machine learning vary across fields? If you can also share a few examples, that would be great. Absolutely. So one of the things that I have had the pleasure of doing uh, is to apply machine learning to about seven different fields uh, over my uh, you know, work, work life. If you want to uh, and, and this includes things like e-commerce, uh, finance, fintech, uh, supply chain optimization, pricing, uh, personal finance, uh, which is current, and then before that, human capital management and astrophysics. So this is basically uh, so, so one thing that I take away is that, you know, all of them have a lot of data. What do you use the machine learning for, right? And so essentially how do you apply? Now, uh, if I, uh, you know, so essentially one thing is just uh, to, you know, reiterate one thing, one thing to start with, which is finance, right? Uh, let's say, let's take uh, a very, very interesting problem, which is trade, right? Everybody wants to predict the stock market. Uh, and, and you know, every, people are asking how do you how do you use machine learning to do that? Uh, fantastic problem, right? But but also uh, one should not overfit, and then then one should not use future information, and then one should not use too much information so that it doesn't become stale. Too little information because it won't be enough signal to noise. So now, so you basically are stuck with the dilemma, and so so much so that you're like, okay, I'm going to shelve machine learning and go to use one of the Arima models out there. Right? It's like just a plain vanilla time series model. But uh, what we discovered is that there are ways to get around overparameterization, which are now, right? For example, very, very important uh, in, in cases of finance. So you basically have to get it down to the wire as to what variables are important, for example, right? Now there are also problems, for example, in, in uh, say computer vision in, in speech, for example, right? Where you are using deep learning. Deep learning is fantastic where overparameterization is okay. In fact, it's it's a desirable consequence to have overfit in those cases, right? So you're like, okay, I have this redundancy, I'm gonna predict that a cat looks like a cat, a dog looks like a dog. And then you can't bring that over to finance very easily because then you're gonna start overfitting those time series, right? Now, the thing is that uh, it's not just about the choices of algorithms and so on. But also, what do you do in different fields? Because I think the deal is that you are uh, essentially, uh, each of those fields requires, has a different need. So some of them need forecasting, some of them need clustering, uh, some of them need uh, things like, you know, just, just give me an idea of reinforcement learning in order to target better and so on. So the whole point is that, you know, you need to find out what is the maximum ROI that you can get by using any machine learning, right? The thing is that I think that is one of the most primary problems in industry, which is that I think a lot of companies jump in saying, I want AI, right? It's like, it, it's a blanket statement. You know, so bring the guys in and uh, you know, it's basically, let's let's see how we can apply AI. But the thing is, I think defining those problems uh, beforehand is super important. And then what it can solve, what can be used to solve it, and essentially, you know, is it is it worth the computational time? Now, now, you know, I'll give you some examples of cases where people are like, I'm going to explore everything and then come back to basic statistics. You know, it's like the last model that they use will be a linear regression or a basic statistical model. Why? Because it's computationally efficient. It's not overfitting. And 
you know, the key mantra today is something called explainable AI, right? Now, you take a more complex model, explainability just goes out of the window. It's not that easy, right? I mean, you have things like Shapley and so on, which can help with that. But essentially, you are kind of like, uh, you know, simpler is better, and then you work your way from there. So my only takeaway from this point on, essentially, if I had to kind of summarize one thing here, is that I think you need to use the right hammer for the right nail. And I think that is something that takes time. And, you know, essentially uh, defining what the hammer is, what the nail is, and what the problem is, are all super important. I know that the, the answer that I have given just now is, seems a little bit vague, but I think the generalizing across fields uh, is, is actually quite a very tedious task, I would say, which requires a little more time. And I, I, I would like to give other panelists time as well to answer that question. So thank you. I hope I have done some justice to your question. Thank you, sir. Actually, to continue, uh, um, um... One thing you said about supply chain, Priyanka, if you can um, continue here, uh, but how AI is being used in the supply chain domain? If also you can share some examples from your experience uh, on AI and data science, would be great. Sure, Lauren. Um, so I think uh, we all came to know about supply chain and people who didn't know about you know what it was. We all came to know during the pandemic. Um, I think most of the supply chains actually crippled during the pandemic and uh, everybody seemed to be realizing that, you know, they need to be um, very efficient and resilient. And um, actually it's very complex. So if you actually see the journey of a product from a manufacturing to the delivery to the customer, to the end customer, it actually has a lot of moving part, parts a lot of systems that are working at the back end and primarily uh, of you know the last 15 years that i've been uh, talking to the different supply chain organizations um, they have usual traditional methods to actually you know keep track of of the supply chain so they are totally based on hard coded rules and um, you know they are not really backed by real data so all the traditional methods and the rules that have been existent for past so many years have actually failed uh, you know during during the pandemic and that is where um, you know people uh, got the direction and wanted to start using uh, data and ai and machine learning that would really help unlock these insights uh, from the complex world of supply chain and and uh, go into a lot of predictions like you know, managing out of stock by getting predictions, uh, uh, better ways to do demand forecasting, uh, predicting supplier delays and supplier risks, and all these, right? So AI and machine learning actually forms a key part in, uh, you know, using that data of the supply chain that kind of lies across multiple right. systems and unlocking the insights uh, using these predictions. Um, the current trend basically in, in, in the traditional demand forecasting is basically uh, using the active demand forecasting, which is uh, dependent on a lot of external factors. So traditionally, they've always been based on historical uh, data that have been um, you know, used for reporting and analytical purpose. Uh, but the current trend is actually uh, infusing the events like market trends, the pricing, 
the supplier risks uh, and even you know real time events like political uh, strikes or labor strikes uh, traffic jams vehicle breakdowns all of those events actually uh, impact the supply chain uh, operation and uh, using ai and uh, machine learning models is kind of the key to solving these problems to understand the impact of all these uh, parameters that play an important role in defining uh, what happens in your supply chain so basically i have been uh, working to infuse these uh, machine learning models into the supply chain systems and um, the second thing i would say is also which is uh, a trend right now uh, is to basically use heuristics and all the domain knowledge that we have developed till now the humans have developed to transfer that to the machines you know using the ontology definitions um and also uh, skilling the uh, or adding the um, skills to the natural language models and an assistant to understand to make sense of all this data and uh, the basic interconnection between these supply chain entities like how the order is actually interconnected to inventory and how the customer is at the center of you know the entire supply chain and how customer will get impacted due to any delays in the inbound shipments or or anything like that so the ontology definition and the graph neural networks are used to kind of understand these links and play a great role uh, you know in building the recommendation models and also uh, you know takes us towards a self correcting supply chain so those are the different applications that uh, i've been working on oh. Sounds very interesting. Um, thank you. Um, Nitin, if you can follow up here and uh, help us understand a bit more about uh, main challenges for scaling with AI and uh, why in some cases um, it's not working. Uh, uh, that's a good, good, good question to start with, Doron. I think uh, Siddharth and Priyanka covered a lot many of uh, use cases that what we, how we can actually start using data science and AI. Uh, in my experience, what I found that, okay, and even McKinsey and Forbes recently published a few of their articles that less than 50% of uh, unstructured data is being actually used in decision making. And the second one is that, okay, more than 80 to 85% of the models uh, never sees uh, the life of the production environment, like they just end uh, after the experimentation. When we read those uh, those uh, two papers in parallel and based on my experience, what I found that, okay, Doron, uh, whenever we start working on AI, we never start thinking from scale. We think that, okay, hey, let's solve this small problem, sort it out, and then we can talk about the scalability later on. But that's not how AI works. Majority of the times what we have seen that, okay, developers, engineers, product managers, or even the management, they are habituated of creating uh, very deterministic systems. For example, A plus B is equals to TC, two plus two is equals to four. So in this case, it's like these kind of systems scale up linearly. Like you have one CPU, one GPU, or a one TPU, just keep adding more CPUs and you will be getting more processing power, more computing power, and scalability will be handled. But in the case of probabilistic system, where we are talking about AI and ML, this kind of a linear fashion never works out. It's not like that, okay, hey, if you can run a model on one CPU, if you're going to add one more CPU, more machines, more computing power, you will be able to scale things up. No, it will not work out like that. You need to think even 
from the scratch that yes, how you are going to solve that particular problem. You have to think at a scale that yes, what kind of a scale that you are going to target and what kind of a things that you're going to solve it out. The second point is Doran, like in my, in my experience, what I found that, okay, AI is almost just like uh, what I should say, a leverage that you have till you have that knowledge until you have that particular algorithm with you and rest of all does not have it. I can give an example. Think about Amazon or like a Google, they have a recommendation system on YouTube. Now you expect that, okay, you're having a recommendation engine everywhere, whether you're going to Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Tata Group, like any website, when you start typing something, you should start getting the right output and you should be recommending the right things to you. So now creating that particular AI framework will not going to give you any competitive advantage. So solving that particular problem, it's not going to make sense. That problem has already, already been solved at scale. Take that solution, take that problem, tweak it as per your needs and, and directly use it. So Don, I think that we, we can discuss this topic uh, of like for, for only for hours. But my understanding is that okay, if you are solving a problem at scale, think at scale. And if you're not doing that, we are actually solving the wrong problem. And we can actually see the business impact later on. And that's why scaling the AI it's not about just computation. It's not just about algorithms. It's about scaling the thought process of the people who are designing it, who are envisioning it, and who are building strategies around it. Thank you. Um, I agree on the scale, and, uh, and I would like to follow up with that. Uh, Sanjeev, you can help us um, understand better about the value proposition of the artificial intelligence machine learning for enterprises. Um, I think it would be a great continue to uh, Nitin's uh, um, input here. Absolutely, Doran. I think well said. Uh, I think Nitin also uh, said certain things, garbage in, garbage out, data drift problem is always there, right? So whether we build models on a smaller data sets and uh, when we start scaling them on a larger data set uh, to the tune of uh, uh, terabytes or petabytes, uh, certainly we understand. So uh, before going to the problem, I uh, also want to uh, just uh, give a kind of a view as to what uh, customer is doing today, right? We need to understand, for, uh, we recently tested one, one of the, uh, this thing, 26 gigabytes spectrum band that we tested for 5G in Pune. And uh, that is Vodafone Idea Limited I'm talking about. And the, the speed that we got was 4.2 Gbps. Imagine what is the kind of data that we are going to get. 100 Mbps is the is something that more than 90, 95% people are enjoying right today. And the data volume of data that we are experiencing already, right? So that also we call it as a big data, right? Imagine when the kind of structured and unstructured data which will flow through the network in terms of uh, images, videos, uh, the social media tweets or uh, uh, or different kind of uh, uh, usage patterns that will emerge now so because the, the customer touch points also have increased, right? So there are so many touch points, so many type of uh, data, so many uh, variety of uh, applications today a consumer is using, right? Today, everything has gone to the mobile part, right? So what, what are we, so that's why uh, I'm just trying to connect the enterprise part and the consumer part. So enterprise, when we're talking about enterprise, I take mobile as one of the uh, uh, edge devices, right? Where we can integrate or embed a lot of uh, intelligence, right? And that can be utilized and leveraged by both consumer as well as enterprise, right? We can have these kind of use cases and I can talk about uh, those use cases. 
very straightforward. So, so a lot of applications as uh, Nitin and Siddharth Priyanka said, a lot of use cases are already available uh, in the market, open source market, right? For consumer to use. But if you want to really make them enterprise version, I think uh, we need to really bring in some very differential uh, competitive advantage to the use case or to the application that we are uh, building on top of AIML, right? And that's why uh, when we are talking about uh, enterprise, talking about consumer or talking about IoT devices, especially I'm talking about. So if we are talking about IoT devices within enterprise and on the other side, the consumer, the volume of data is increasing, right? Uh, if we talk about the overall telecom industry, I think today, uh, uh, the kind of uh, calls or uh, the CDRs that are generated called detailed record, it would be massive. It would be uh, uh, very huge. I think uh, roughly we can talk about 10 to 12 uh, 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 billions of CDRs that are generated every day across telecom industry. I'm talking about top three players, right? So look at this kind of scale of data that is coming. Now building on top of uh, this, this volume of data, different predictive models, right? So be it the uh, classification related model, recommendation, anomaly detection, or uh, identifying where the networks are failing, right? And that too on the real time basis. So these are the, these are, these are the challenges which we generally face. Uh, and the value that we bring in uh, is, uh, of course, I said, when we start the, uh, the AIML model strategy, we understand as uh, Nitin also said, 80% of the projects, AIML projects, they don't see uh, the production environment. That's right. Why? Because then the value proposition is not worked out very clearly, right? So if we understand that, that there is a cost involved to a particular project, what is the kind of cost we are going to save? What is, what is the kind of revenue we are going to generate? And what is the kind of efficiency we can bring in looking at the customer, right? Looking at the customer benefits. These all things, if we can bring in, we can uh, certainly ask customer to pay a little extra. That's not, a customer doesn't want, mind paying a little extra if you are providing that kind of service uh, to the customer. So certainly uh, uh, these are the things and then building different predictive models to uh, make customer's life little easy in terms of maybe cross-selling, identifying cross-selling opportunities, upselling opportunities, right? Rec product recommendation opportunities, or identifying uh, basis, uh, the text or basis, the email, just try to understand what is the kind of sentiment a particular uh, customer has across region, across India, right? 270 million customers. I think 90% of the countries won't have that much population, how much customers we have today. So, and uh, there are other uh, telecom uh, uh, organizations within India itself who are having 450 million customers. So that's a huge base, right? And uh, that's the kind of volume. And that's why these big data models, big data AIML models, they bring in uh, these benefits in terms of revenue for the organization, customer experiences for the organization. I think uh, it makes a certain difference, right? when we are we are trying to perform we are trying to shift from plain uh, descriptive analytics to predictive and then going to prescriptive analytics and and then i'll i'll, I'll say going to a preemptive kind of analytics where we are actually uh, 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 identifying the fault before it is happening fault detection and so on and so forth 
so this this is these are my points few points uh, that i would like to i wanted to highlight basically thank you we'll definitely go deeper um, in the next parts of the discussion um following following talk about the scale and data science that was uh, mentioned uh, maybe from another angle don if you can follow up and tell us a bit more about what's uh, inspiring for you with the ai and, uh, and analytics yeah, so I think um, there's obviously a lot of development and a lot of new things coming out, new innovations. I think the most inspiring for me are definitely ha happening in the area of natural language and video. I think there's tremendous amounts of, of innovation happening there at the moment. I think big technology companies are developing huge language models and they're actually open sourcing these for general use with, you know, sometimes I think up to the latest uh, is a trillion different parameters being being modeled. Um, and I think that, you know, you know, costs tens, if not hundreds of millions to actually produce. And these are being made available to, to enthusiasts and innovators all around the world. And that is, you know, the breeding ground for a tremendous amount of innovation um, where, you know, great minds with, uh, who are savvy and hungry uh, get powered for free by, um, you know, the, the, the technology shoulders of giants, to use it metaphorically. Um, and I think we're going to see the same thing in, in video and in computer vision happening soon as well. Um, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's the next big wave of that type of, type of innovation, or I hope at least it is. Uh, I, I don't know how the experience of these big tech companies have been, you know, exposing language models, but I hope they continue to do that into, into video and image. So I think those for me are the most exciting developments, I think on the technology side. I also think that, you know, from a um, corporate or enterprise, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the B2B space. So, so that's, that's, that's where, where I'm focusing most of my energy and time. So, you know, I talk to that. Um, I think what's exciting is that more and more traditional, so non-digital native enterprises are um, starting to scale their capabilities starting to get in control of their data, starting to develop the people skills necessary and starting to get in place the tooling, whether it's on-prem or through the use of, you know, the acceleration in the cloud uh, to actually enable um, analytics product and AI product development, um, which is starting to, to, to get traction and which is starting to yield results and which is starting to truly change the way people um, use data in their decision-making or in their process or in, the, in customer interactions. And, you know, I see that at ING, where, you know, we, after many years of, of growing our capability, are starting to develop processes, people skills and tooling, which, you know, are starting to look more mature. And um, I expect, you know, an exciting development within the traditional enterprise like ING uh, is that these uh, will result in many more productive use cases and many more uh, effective and personalized customer interaction. Thank you, uh, Dawan. Um, moving forward, uh, Nitin, I'd like to go back to you. If you can help our audience learn more about more specific examples for industry segments, um, you know, from your expertise to talk about how artificial intelligence is evolving um, for specific segments. If you have few examples, I think that'll be great. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Dawan. So, like, Dawan, the first thing is about uh, uh, that's really interesting and what I should say, uh, very prominent is the maturity level across various industry verticals. And it's not just about the maturity level, but it's also about like regulations and compliance that you can actually see. 
the fun example using deep learning or um, like uh, uh, even a very sophisticated machine learning models in financial services or even in healthcare or in banking sector it's very very challenging because explainability or like explaining that particular model getting the right validations from the compliance team and regulation is is getting very very challenging so over there you will see that okay even a very basic model like random forest xgboost catboost they are still their sweethearts and uh, we are solving some really fun problems using that credit risk scoring and uh, preventing frauds and then those kind of use cases are still prominent uh, in, in in these kind of industry but now we have seen the shift uh, from from this kind of a behavior to a more sophisticated models like automatically processing uh, documents or creating or building chatbots for providing right customer services and so on and so forth like a lot many other use cases that that we can envision and the similar way in the healthcare you can see like a lot of innovations are happening on medical imaging side that is how we can predict lung cancer or even like a tuberculosis the first of i think the foremost uh, ai model approved by fda to as a diagnostic tool as a medical device and so on and so forth so i think now we can say that okay hey those base models and everything that might go away and we have to move forward with with some more complex model with a pinch of salt that okay hey you cannot explain everything and if you're not understanding uh, anything in detail it doesn't mean that okay, it's a garbage you have to you have to trust uh, a few few things at a certain point of the time in the similar way what we have seen like in manufacturing and industry verticals Yes, in predictive maintenance is one of the foremost use cases. Optimization is also an upcoming field for operational research. That yes, how can I build my maintenance plan? What to do? How much energy to build? When to sell? Whom to whom to sell? And so on and so forth. So there are like a lot of uh, uh, interesting use cases are coming in media and entertainment. I think Sanjeev is already here. I cannot touch that telecom. So he he he's the expert and he's the guru. but still like even in the telecom we can say that okay a lot many other use cases and interesting use cases might be coming up using these kind of a technologies but i think one thing it's uh, prominent across that okay democratization of this particular technology and aiml that's helping not just the industry but also the experts now companies have started talking about that okay i do not need skills who can build models i need people who can actually work on the data who has the right uh, skills on these industry on the domain on the solution and who can use my pre-trained model after tweaking the data i do not need more data scientists and i believe that okay in future there are going to be a whole uh, range of what i should say industry vertical specific scientists or a data scientist will come into the picture who can actually solve a problem instead of just like writing some random code and training the model right um thank you nitin uh, before we go deeper into ai uh David, from a cybersecurity perspective, what are the and talking again about industries um, from a cybersecurity point of view? What are some of the industries applications for uh, AI um, that seems to have critical security requirements? I think be, if you can yeah. help with that. Sure. Um, first of all, these other ideas were really were very interesting. I'll tell you the one that caught me kind of the funniest was. Uh, Priyanka I didn't realize thinking about it how much the pandemic highlighted to everybody the recognition of the job that you're working on it just caught me as wow she just went from probably everybody looking at her that has no clue why you would be doing this to why that is one of the most important things somebody could be affects of somebody so just as a side it caught me as funny while you were talking about that um my immediate my flip answer 
Doron on that is, hey, if it's worth developing an AI application, it's likely sufficient to protect it. Um, but to be more specific, and I'm going to give you some examples of things that we've been thinking, you know, looking at, and we've been focusing a lot on, on, on edge applications, both far edge and, and near edge types of applications. And some of the most critical things we're seeing is really dealing with critical infrastructure, um, which is actually more about 12, 14 different industries. And obviously the last month or so, the protection of that has been dramatically highlighted. But the things um, we're seeing and working with are things even that you don't think about is, is the food supply system. And there are actually over 2 million farms in the US alone. And I think there are about 50 billion farms uh, on the planet. And you have things that you have drones automatically monitoring um, the fields for, for irrigation, automating tractors going out in order to, how do you make it more efficient and increase the food supply? Um, in the country. And a lot of these kinds of things that are monitored by AI also, the reason why a lot of them are at the edge is because they have a need for very rapid performance, low latency, and don't want to send huge information back and forth. Um, related somewhat to that infrastructure, um, even the, the power grid, um, just as one example, I mean, you could knock out 200 power stations in the U.S. and knock out the entire power grid, and there's 55,000 stations here. And it's actually interesting because 38% of those are actually, um, of the attacks against the power grid are actually physical. So we see things like visual AI for surveillance and monitoring um, the, the critical infrastructure, whether it's pipe, water supply or pipeline, um, industrial plants, food supply, seeing there's a whole range of, of AI and, and I'm seeing personally visual AI is really um, critical area. And I know there's multiple aspects of visual, visual AI behind that. Um, just as maybe one other example, um, in, in healthcare, seeing quite a bit, both from um, how do you, the, the data is critical in healthcare. So from a security perspective, that's why we're kind of involved in that perspective, not only protecting if it's doing AI for the individual devices, but really uh, multi-party AI, um, literally working on a pilot where people are taking um, AI information, they're, they're taking data from multiple hospitals about uh, MRI scans. And the more data you have, obviously, the, the more relevant um, and, and the, the outcome is going to be. But the issue is no one wants to share the data. It's extremely sensitive and to de-identify it is, is a real hassle. And so from a security perspective, there are mechanisms to actually be able to people to share this information, maintain its privacy. No one can see it, but they could share the insights going out. And it's why that's a case of not only protecting it, but it also enables that kind of multi-party analytics without having to worry about exposing the information as well. Um, so this, those are just a few of them. Um, that along with, there are so many areas, but those are at least just a few of some of the ones that I'm seeing that from a security perspective um, are really popping up in, in our purview. Thank you, David. Um, sure, we'll deal more with the privacy in the years to come, especially in healthcare, but probably in other segments as well. Um, before we move on to the more deeper discussion about challenges, just to remind everyone, you can leave us any question you want in the Q&A part below, 
And one of the things I, I would like to mention, this is actually uh, the first uh, discussion out of two. These are, this is part one of AI and Big Data, and there will be another webinar uh, following the, this one. I know some people are, um, are supposed to join both, so just a quick reminder. Um, happy to move to the more deeper part of the discussion, talk about a little bit about challenges, the different approaches, and of course, solutions we have for AI, uh, machine learning, and big data. Priyanka, I would like to start with you. If you can help us out with uh, some, what challenges do you see in the adoption of AI in the supply chain? Um, and elaborate as, as much as you, as you can. Um, sure, Doran. So, so Nitin talked about, you know, data being very important to actually build domain related models, right? And I think um, all the organizations and enterprises and businesses do want to, you know, take on to the AI journey. But where I have seen everybody struggle is just at the foundation, which is, you know, the heart of AI is actually getting the right data. And uh, if I have to uh, talk about the supply chain world where there are multiple uh, disparate systems working together to make the supply chain work, uh, which has diverse data sources, multi-cloud, um, you know, hybrid cloud, um, and, um, and distributed processes. And all of that data, if you see, it has to come together uh, in such a way that it is easily accessible and uh, also, you know, considering all the um, governance aspects of the data. So there should be good control over who can access that data and how it could be used, um, you know, within the data privacy and the data confidentiality laws that are uh, really strong these days. Uh, it, it is a big challenge in actually going on to the AI uh, roadmap or the AI journey. So that, that's the biggest challenge. And I think um, the data fabric and the data virtualization kind of concepts, uh, which kind of try to weave in all these different uh, data sources uh, onto a common platform, which is governed by uh, you know, rules and, and uh, policies. Uh, I think that would be the, um, the base that uh, we should work on. And the second thing that I talked about, you know, getting all our domain knowledge and, and really passing it on to the machines to be able to understand that. Um, so these two are the challenges even before, you know, we could uh, uh, get AI and machine learning to do any work for us or generate any revenue for us or help us in any, any problems. Thank you, Branka. Uh, um, how do you choose machine learning algorithm other than, you know, for different various tasks? Yeah, actually, uh, so one of the things is I did uh, touch on this before, right? And uh, I, I did highlight that, for example, uh, you would not use deep learning very commonly in finance as, as you might not use, for example, uh, you know, a very simple thing like in random uh, forest for a very large classification. But generally speaking, right? Let's say that uh, you have uh, what you have a task which basically has a uh, different structure, a different set of data. So and you should ask yourself the question first: What kind of data do you have? So let's say that you have image data, you have voice data. 
deflating as well. So there's a massive amount of computer. But but again, there is also the question of being diligent with the computer because uh, as as, uh, as I guess uh, Ramon was uh, you know alluding to, there are all of these massive models which have been trained, right? And there is also this uh, idea. I do see somebody saying there's this ecological impact <laughs> which has come up, and and uh, David has said that, and and it's a fantastic question because I am always worried about that, right? Uh, and I'm worried about it not just from an ecological standpoint, but also from the standpoint of being just a person who does not want to use too much uh, when I can use little, right? So the question is, what is the right amount of complexity that the model actually needs? Now, the complexity that it needs, so essentially say, say that, you know, it, it's, uh, I know deep learning has been extremely prominent often. Uh, now a lot of people end up using it. I'm not against deep learning as such. In fact, I find it perfectly good for problems which, I, as I mentioned earlier, require some level of over-parameterization or fitting. But at the same time, I think they are very expensive. So in fact, these massive models can be really expensive to train, hundreds of uh, billions of billions, trillions sometimes, right, of uh, you know, weeks which to get trained. So my question is, you actually, the first question to ask is, do you need something that complex to solve the problem? And if the answer is yes, by all means, go ahead. Now, let me go ahead with another answer. The other side of the answer is, let me say <laughs> what you can do, uh, you know, in different fields, right? So for example, right, uh, you said, okay, the question is, how do you choose? Right? Uh, there are different types, so you know the different types of machine learning exists, right? So different types are supervised, unsupervised, there is also the uh, reinforcement, and then there is semi-supervised learning. Right? If you want to you know, classify it as sort of like, you know, very broadly, these are kind of the forms, right? And the thing is that the, all of these have different methods which are in now, one thing I would say is that, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the industrial applications, because I think one of the key things in this, this meeting or conference is that we are all, uh, you know, uh, data science leaders in industry. And I think the key is to basically ask the question, what kind of problems can you solve? In now, uh, for me, I, I, I look at a number of different types of problems that can be solved. So, they go from anomaly detection, computer vision, forecasting, uh, cohorting or clustering, right? That we do often. Optimization, I know several of you have mentioned that earlier. Attribution, a very important problem. So essentially you ask the question, how do you attribute? You know, causal inference has become a big thing in medical science, I know several of you have mentioned that. Uh, and then reinforcement learning, of course, you know, all of your marketing models have just moved to reinforcement learning. Your portfolio optimizations have moved to Learning. Anywhere where you have an explore versus exploit, that's where your reinforcement learning comes in. And then, of course, there's a huge domain of natural language processing. So, now the thing is, I could delve into each of these things. Right? <laughs> the question is, uh, how do I answer this in a more generic fashion? So, you take each of these problems, right? There are two key things here. One is, what is the level of complexity that you need? Because it depends on the problem. How large is your parameter space? How much data do you have in time? Yeah. How fast is it going state? Right? How fast is the data going state? And how much of those uh, features can you actually engineer by yourself or by the machine? Right? 
Now, all of these play a role in determining what you should do. For example, right, in finance, very commonly people end up using SPMs, right? Support definitions. It's a very, very specific answer. I don't want to, you know, become a red herring here because I think uh, it's like it's not the only thing that can be used. I know that people will be like, okay, what is he saying? I, and I'll tell you one thing. So, so one example is to use an SPM, for example, because it's like fantastic. It's like a asymptotically equivalent to a elastic net or a linear limit. Uh, also can work with very recent data. You don't need too many parameters. Can be, you know, perfectly say refined to actually you know go with decent level of parameterization when it's used in conjunction with say other feature selection methods. Right. So my uh, general approach to solving any particular problem right, has been to always you know say cut down the feature space very large. So essentially start off with a very large feature space, do your feature engineering. Cut it down using, say, things like a correlation matrix, your mutual information, things like that, and then go ahead with your machine learning algorithm because you don't want to feed a billion parameters with your machine learning anything, right? uh, because it cannot, most algorithms cannot take. So that's kind of been always my approach. Now, that's as far as, say, training is concerned, you can use things like SVMs, fantastic, right? When you have, for example, things like, you know, you want to learn the posterior distribution. You have a lot of data which is covering different parts of the parameter space, and essentially it's not uber complex, right? Uh, and you need explainability. Of course, I think that I mentioned this, you end up using things like random forests and gradient posting. Right? Fantastic, right? Random forests even give you like feature reporting. Why would you not use something like that? It's so great. Uh, although it's 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 not the most precise feature reporting, but it's good enough. You know, it's a starting point. It's fantastic. So I, I would use that. You know, I am a big fan of Rana Forest. Uh, call me a fool in that sense, but I really like that. Right? And then, of course, you come to the you know overfitting parameter space, overfitting kind of domain, which is okay with doing that. You have your natural language processing. You know, fantastic advances have been made uh, with with image recognition, with speech, uh, with deep learning. So I mean, the justification for deep learning exists to a tremendous level. Right? I mean, I am really a big fan. And I actually end up using uh, quite a bit of it, you know, for GANs and things like that. I like generating art, generating music, things like that. And you can't go anywhere else to do that sort of stuff. Reinforcement learning has completely become the domain of deep learning right now. Right? You know, it's like deep reinforcement learning is the real thing. I mean, you know, machines that play Super Mario, which play chess, beat grandmasters, come on. I mean, what else can you ask? Right? So I think the deal is, you know, I've given quite a bit of information here, but my only point is that, you know, being diligent from the beginning of the, you know, the data exploration process all the way to the end is key to understanding what should be used well. And I hope uh, that that kind of gives you a picture of what I'm trying to convey. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Doran, moving to you from your point of view, um, how do you become a data-driven enterprise? What ignites it? Where, where do we start from transforming to a data-driven enterprise? You know, we talk about AI and so on. I'd love to hear your view about it. Uh, so I think it always starts with a strategic imperative. Um, you know, I think customers today expect a amazing customer experience. Uh, you know, we at ING have a strategy to try and create a differentiating customer experience. It is simply impossible to create a differentiating customer experience without the use of analytics at the very least, uh, uh, you know, going uh, through to, to AI. 
um, because most of the experiences that people have today, uh, whether you know they in search or on social media apps or on different e-commerce apps in their private lives, uh, are incorporating subtle intelligence, uh, you know, and seamless journeys that are only enabled with the use of AI. So you know, there's simply a strategic imperative today and in order to get it moving, you need that strategic imperative. I think next to that, you of course need a strong leadership that actually buys into that. You know, we've been very lucky at ING, for instance, to have leaders who have said, we are gonna invest in new technology, new skills, um, and we're gonna try and bring those technologies and those skills to the business and to our customers. Uh, so I think that's critical, strong leadership. I then think you need to make it as concrete as possible. So it, you need to get pretty tangible pretty quickly. You know, I think a lot of PowerPoints and a lot of processes and a lot of talk will not, uh, will, will get you some of the way, but will not truly gain momentum. And then following that, I think you really need to have the different ingredients uh, working together to scale that. Um, and I've alluded, you know, previously that you need to have the people, the processes, the technology in place. And that needs to to happen, at, you know, at an equal pace. Uh, you 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 need everything to work together, uh, because you know, you cannot place a data scientist alone in a context and expect them to, uh, you know, do all the things necessary in order to bring a model to production. Uh, there's a there's a lot more, you know, skill sets and and processes needed. Um, and you know, of course, you need to have your house in order as well from a risk perspective. So as a regulated, you know, institution, uh, you know, it's 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 crucial that that our customers are safe and secure at all times, and that we are, you know, ensuring that our data and our customers' data is safe and secure at all times. And so it's imperative that in that scaling process you have those guardrails in place, because the easiest thing you can do is stop innovation. Uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is let innovation go un, unguarded uh, from a risk perspective. But most of the projects and most of the projects fall somewhere in the middle. So you have to have, you know, or, uh, you know, a well-organized um, environment around that. So I think th those are those are the ingredients you, you really need to, to, to bring um, bring things to scale, at least in, in my context. Thank you. Um... Following about that, Sanjeev, if you can help us uh, looking into the future about some of the challenges uh, in processing big data and machine learning models, uh, look into the future. The more we're doing it, we talked before about scale. So some of the uh, challenges or problems we should be looking at um, moving forward. So certainly, I, I would like to pick your this question in uh, two perspectives. One is the business side and the other, the other is uh, the AIML strategy that we want to uh, apply, right? So there are, so there are multiple uh, governance steps or government regulatory changes, which also impact uh, uh, the kind of models. For example, if you're talking about autonomous cars, right? And who takes, and uh, I think uh, David was also talking about security and who claims the responsibility of uh, an autonomous car making an accident, right? So who claims the responsibility, who should be held accountable, right? So these are the kind of governance rules and what are the regulatory uh, challenges around the, uh, uh, the use cases or the solutions uh, that we build. 
using AML. Now, also we have to look at the competition uh, strategies which are uh, changing. And also I uh, thought uh, I should be talking about uh, data monetization here, right? Because uh, see, privacy is certainly uh, uh, an important part that we have to do. We have to make sure that the privacy is maintained for the customer. But at the same time, data and the behavior, behavior of a, a behavior that is captured through the data, right? If I say without telephone number or without customer ID, if I can share the rest of the attributes to an ecosystem, I think a lot of cancer patients can be saved then, right? So because the attribute, the, the, the data, the images, if I'm talking about the images, images, if I remove the customer identification details from there, the images can then directly help me understand whether or not a person will have cancer or not. This is certain CNNs that I apply on top of uh, the imagery data that is uh, gathered, right? And this data uh, uh, can range not only within a country, right? We can accumulate this data from the whole world, right? And then uh, uh, the challenges that you are talking about now, today, if we look at uh, the, the capacity that we currently have from cloud, see the major problem was storage, processing, right? Integration of end-to-end uh, -end pipeline from the touch point, right? If I want to uh, push any intelligence to an edge or push an intelligence to a mobile or an end destination, that was a challenge. But now that those things are getting uh, corrected with different kind of connectors and uh, uh, APIs which are now available, right, to actually process the data, trigger the inference, and then push push it back to the end user, right? Whether it is an enterprise or a consumer, the intelligence is pushed there. Now, if I look at uh, uh, the challenges, uh, see, uh, uh, let's understand the volume of data, how it, that volume is going to increase. I told you about the 5G. Uh, which is capable of giving 4.2 uh, GBPS. Uh, that means 4 GB over 4 GB in a second, right? That's a that's a large volume of data. Now, volume of data is going to explode. How do we make use? How do we store this data? How do we process this data? Becomes a challenge. Now, when we talk about data, there are multiple type of data that we have. That is a customer usage behavior, billing behavior, or structured, unstructured, and I uh, saw uh, so social media data or the video data or the imagery that is accumulated uh, through these networks, right? So intelligence will also be based on what is the decision support an image can provide me, right? Looking at an image, can I give a access? If I build a face detection uh, application, can I, uh, can I uh, accurately identify uh, any, uh, uh, a person, right? And then give access, right? If I want to build a, 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 an alert system, burglary, burglary alert system, can I make that? Can I put that edge device on top of my, in front of my house so that a camera itself will be able to make a decision whether the person knocking the door is uh, somebody suspicious or, uh, or is a little unfriendly, right? So that kind of uh, information can then be pushed back to my mobile or a consumer's mobile or a subscriber's mobile saying that somebody uh, is knocking at the door, which is quite suspect, uh, uh, not normal, right? Right, so those are the, those are the kind of uh, uh, problems. Then we also have to look at uh, 
so conventional so i think siddharth talked a lot about uh, different conventional algorithms that are currently used right so svm ada boost or uh, linear regression logistic and so on and so forth right we also have to understand that the the algorithms are getting updated right so every day new statisticians or uh, there is an upgrade to the neural networks and the deep learning is increasing now because as uh, doron rightly pointed out that most of the intelligence would go towards social media data unstructured data and video analytics data that is silent that is true what is what can be seen can be sold right and that's why if we can inference from the image or a video and send that intelligence for example if i have installed a camera iot camera visual sensor camera at i uh, square right where a lot of traffic is there it will be able to count and send back the report to a, a traffic uh, uh, police center right saying that this is the kind of congestion which is happening in different nooks and corners of a city right so traffic planning can certainly be achieved right if some kind of procession is passing through a particular area if and if uh, these images are able to uh, these video, uh, cameras are able to capture those images and send to the nearest uh, police station saying that yes there is a process the procession which is going on or there is a congregation which is happening right and which is not normal based on the 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 uh, uh, the previous learning of the model right so the entire ecosystem becomes little more intelligent intuitive and the models also become self learning right so these kind of images whether or not it was a peaceful procession or it was a violent uh, activity which was going on in a particular area can then be fed back as a reinforcement learning as as an images or different kind of voices noises that we capture in form of cognitive uh, form because ultimately we how do we feel how do we uh, connect or how do we understand any event is because of different uh, perceptions right we see we touch we listen we do different we we take different data sources in mind and ultimately ai is mimicking uh, uh, the human behavior right so similarly we would like to have a image coming in the, vo the, the voice coming in the kind of uh, uh different kind of inputs that we can get right to make a inference i think these are the challenges uh, that uh, will be there and certainly then we talk about the real time analytics or real time inputs that we want and that's why there is a concept of uh, edge analytics and process not processing on the cloud so so that's why can we have these kind of applications running at the edge, edge itself and the intelligence at the edge itself can be so for example if i want if a person wants an access in office camera should be able to decide whether or not the person is uh, genuine or not right instead of that pick that image goes back to cloud the authentication happens there and then there is a signal coming from there if there is no network then there is a failure right and similarly chatbots working offline online on the cruises where no internet is there so there has to be intelligence at the edge right so if chatbot is working at uh, on top of some cruise in the middle of the sea it should be able to work without internet connection without getting connected to cloud it should carry that intelligence right in form of maybe those pickle objects so on and so forth so these are the uh, challenges uh, that i see 
and i think a lot of uh, it is getting mitigated over a period of time with uh, these cloud technologies which are coming in uh, to the market doran thank you sanjeev now thank you following on that i would like to us to talk about edge and think about uh, 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 production environments and priyanka if you can help us with some of the risks to uh, ai solutions we need to take into consideration when talking about uh, AI solution for production. Um, can you help us out? Um, sure, Doran. So I know we covered a lot of topics and um, you know scaling the machine learning models, etc., in production. Um, so the top three risks or challenges that you know I have seen across multiple implementations. Uh, is the first one being uh, you know the capability to reproduce the data across the different environments so the data stream the data structure the quality and the sequence of features that is coming in uh, in your build environment where you when you're trying to build the model uh, mostly it is very difficult to replicate that and reproduce it in the production environment so i think um, even before we actually plan building the model this is one risk that we carry and uh, you should work around you know uh, architectural frameworks to kind of ensure that the data reproducibility is you know always that concern is always checked and we have uh, built guardrails around you know handling that so um, that is one and um, and the second thing is uh, the infrastructure so i think uh, siddharth talked about and, and some more people talked about and nitin talked about uh, you know uh, what kind of infrastructure you would actually need and and you need to really think through that before we even start you know building the model how much uh, whether we need the gpus and, and or we are you know okay with the, having uh, small cpus uh, scaling horizontally and it all depends on the architecture of your machine learning uh, uh, model whether you have offline prediction model or your model is actually serving as a microservice or you're embedding it in a website and, and so on and so forth so the data reproducibility uh, the infrastructure scaling or the elastic infrastructure if we need need that uh based on the requirements all of this uh, need to be thought through even before we actually start uh implementing a ai solution and the third most important point um uh, which kind of also talks about the data reproducibility is the um you know process of continuous monitoring of um important parameters like um you know the data sequence and the data quality so there should be process to monitor that at the uh, inbound as well as you know uh, at the outbound we need to measure the bias and accuracy and fairness uh, and and this uh, monitoring infrastructure needs to be in place always and uh, setting up a feedback loop to kind of you know tune back the models uh, if there is any change in this and uh, any change in either in the data quality or the input data or you know the parameters like accuracy and and fairness and bias um so i think that is the third most important point so those three uh, risks if you kind of cover that while designing while architecting your ai solution i think we would have covered most of the challenges that we would face 
uh, you know, down the line. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, moving on to, to the discussion, talking a bit about uh, cybersecurity consideration regarding uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I would like to hear, Nitin, um, is kind of a general question to start with is, um, is AI safe, AI and machine learning safe? You know, considering different risks we see, and we know, you know, there's a lot of talk about cybersecurity lately. Um, what's your thoughts about that? Um, how can we help uh, protect against uh, different risks and threats we see? Absolutely, Doran. So, uh, a disclaimer before before answering or putting my thoughts on this thing. I'm an optimistic guy. Okay, so I, I believe that okay, AI ML, it's it's a safe technology. It's an cybersecurity saying you're optimistic. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I believe that again, okay, it's, it's a safe technology, but it actually depends that, okay, who is building it and who is actually using it. What's the intent? So when I say that, okay, one of the biggest risks in AI ML technology is government. That, okay, what kind of an ethics or practices that you're using? As you can see, Google has published their AI principles. Microsoft is publishing something similar as well that okay hey, these are the problems that they will be working and these are the problems they will not be uh, they will not be working what kind of a governance model that you're going to put what kind of an ethicist that you're going to actually uh, suggest and add to make your models like uh, what i should say to remove any discrimination or to remove like any sort of an ex exclusion it's it has to be uh, very 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 inclusive so it actually depends that okay yes uh, who is creating it but along with that it actually depends that okay who is using it Microsoft published or launched a chatbot with a very great intention, but everybody knows that, okay, hey, what kind of a data that users provided, the kind of a things that chatbot actually learned over a period of a time, and it started actually doing very, very bad things that it was not supposed to do. Adversarial attacks, it's, it's, going, to, it's going to improve. If AIML technology is helping us, it's going to help hackers as well. It's going to help spammers and scammers as well. So that cat and a mouse game will, will always go on. I think we just need to be very, very careful that, okay, hey, how to use this technology? If you're building anything, don't just think about what kind, what kind of a things that it can do for like a, only the good thing. Also think like from, like from the black hat as well, that okay, or what I should say from the weird hat as well, that yes, what kind of a bad things that it can do, how this can be actually used in a way that it is not supposed to be used. Only then launch anything, only then launch any of those solutions. That's why I really appreciate um, uh, the logic behind OpenAI's like a GPT-3 uh, stance that, okay, we will not be making this thing open source because it can be used at some, like some places it should not be. And that's absolutely right. If you're not very well aware of the power of this technology, please, please, please don't use it. Otherwise, overall, in my experience, it's, it's a safe technology. Thank you, Nitin. Um, David, David, moving to you, hopefully you're, you're as optimistic, but uh, <laughs> I think I know you better. So I'll ask actually, you know, following Nitin, if, if you can help us out with um, what do we need to take into consideration? What are the specific things um, need to be protected when talking about AI computing? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, I want to, I am. Optimistic, I think, by the way, just to add to his previous answer, because it had me thinking about a hundred things. Um, it's actually two things. Look, every advanced technology you could use for good, good and bad. The technology is not inherently good or bad. It's There's a whole range of policies around it, depending on how you want to use it. Um, I'm actually reading a book about 
it's fiction, but based on truth, AI in 2041, you know, it takes you through scenarios of how it may actually be used. And it really depends. It could bring on new kinds of jobs. It could take, take away, you know, take away jobs. Privacy, it, it explains how AI may be used to monitor literally in China versus might be used in the US. And it's totally different you know, level of monitoring of people movement that you can control and, and do social engineering versus not. So it's really strictly depends, I think, on policy more. That's my two second thing on that. The other thing about as far as protection, um, from a pure cybersecurity perspective, I think there are things like, um, one, you have to obviously protect the model itself. You can, you know, get to the model, um, make some code changes and, and, and cause some ser serious problem. But also the data, you know, there's a lot of activity, people going on to say, well, let me change some things in the data that would cause problems. Kind of a simplistic example, but highlights it, let's say, you know, self-driving cars automation and it's monitoring and there's a crash up ahead. You know, you can, um, if the crash is, you know, 10 feet in front of you and somebody's modifying, you know, the data and says, hey, it's a hundred feet in front of you, well, that's gonna be a pretty big difference. You know, by the time you get the response, you've already crashed. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do to change the data. So you've really have to, from a security perspective, protect the information as well. Um, even from, we think about how do you distribute the model? So if you have federated AI and the model gets out there, um, how do you store a copy, sign it, um, store mask, sign it, securely distributed, authenticated when it goes out there. So you know you're actually distributing the same model somewhere and it's not a hack model that's, that's being uh, intercepted. Um, again, we talked earlier about even you know, collaboration um, and those are kinds of things. How do you protect the privacy? So one, there are rules. Um, we've joined this group Alliance for AI and Healthcare and there's actually two working groups. Again, one is dealing on policy of data sharing, and one is dealing on the technical implications on how do you protect the privacy, uh, depending on the policy. And there are some people who think, you know, we've gone too far protecting some of the data because there's massive advantage. If you could collate all the information about COVID as the most obvious example, right. you could get a lot more information, but how do you share that? And then you have privacy implications. And that's why there's one working group working on the policies and the other one working on the technology behind being able to, to, sh to share um, the information. So I think there's a range of aspects and those are kinds of some of the things, you know, in a relatively brief supply that I think we need to consider about when uh, we protect AI and the better we protect it, um, the less, the more optimistic I get, at least that takes away a whole sphere of, of attack and distrust that would go on, at least if we protect it from that perspective. Thank you, David. Um, following that, especially talking about privacy and different systems, uh, Dawn, I'd love to hear more from you about um, how do you say it, maybe in your experience or the organization you work with uh, about the balance between data privacy and innovation we're working with uh, artificial intelligence and uh, in analytics in general. Yes, yeah, so uh, look, a lot of the points I think have already been covered. Um, I think yeah, I can tell you a bit about how we do it. I think, uh, I think it's a lot, you know, you are dealing with, um, as much as we talk about technology and AI and machine learning, at the end of the day, it's got a lot to do with how people handle data. 
And, you know, that's got a lot to do with values uh, and with policies and restrictions. Uh, so I think it's important, and we do that, educate people. We use the principle called the Ten Commandments uh, of data and how we act with data in an ethical uh, way. I think it's also important that you have the mechanisms in place within the organization to discuss dilemmas and that you have a culture which enables people to expose dilemmas and, and, and feel that those can be thoroughly discussed. Um, you know, I said, it's always easy to say no. Uh, it's more difficult to say yes, but you wanna say yes with, with you know, a thorough process and thorough due diligence. I think by and large, in most instances, you know, the, the de facto um, outcome is ask the customer. Uh, so, you know, um, if, if, if the customer has explicitly enabled you to use data for a specific purpose, then it's your job to adhere to that purpose uh, in a very, um, uh, yeah, in a very um, unwavering uh, way. And um, if the customer has not given you approval to use data for a specific purpose, then you shouldn't do that. Um, and I think that, um, you know, when in doubt as to any ethical issues uh, around the use of data, simply don't do it. Um, I think if you look at, um, say, going more to uh, uh, the exposure of machine learning algorithms to different security risks, I think then you go to, you know, for instance, um, poisoning data where someone you know, ex, you know, infiltrates and, and, and poisons your, your, your data, or you go to, for instance, where someone uses some kind of um, you know, method to, to abuse the, your model in order to re-educate it. Um, so you get prediction drift and that kind of thing, um, which leads to different outcomes. I think, to, to, you, know, you know, I haven't seen that. I've, 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 read, I've read about it more recently uh, as a new domain of security, but I haven't really seen anything with in, in you know specific about that uh, definitely not in our organization and you know no announcements from other organizations that I'm aware of thank you um, since we're kind of running low on time I would like another question to go back to David you know we mentioned a few um, in the discussion we mentioned uh, edge and you know the opportunities edge brings with analytics and obviously with the ai um as as we know this with, with new technology there's always new uh, challenges can we talk about the, just in really briefly about ai and edge and the security challenges we see there um yes yeah, so, so um there are certain things first of all by Edge means a range of things. So let's assume kind of the things are closer to the, you know, far edge. And, and there's an example, you know, there's a question that even came up about um, how do you get processing power and stuff at the edge. And some of the challenges uh, by itself is a lot of times at the edge by its, by definition is not necessarily secure. You may be putting it in a sports stadium. You may be putting it, you know, near a farm. Um, you may be putting it on a factory floor. It, may or may not be, it may be isolated in and of itself. And so the concept is almost, and how do you do this easily? Um, the concept is almost, how do you do almost a secure data center in a box? How do you just take everything and, and be able to get all the processing power and all the security inside of one environment? And I know this was kind of a leading question because it's kind of, you know, as one example, it's kind of what Hub does um, actually from that perspective. 
And everything, everything sits inside of one thing. So you might have everything from the, you know, the root of trust through the, through the access, through the processing power in one thing, but now you have to protect it. And when you go about doing that, there's a whole new kind of computing paradigm to even increase the perspective dealing with kind of confidential computing. So you wanna protect the data as it's in transit. You also wanna protect it while it's sitting there. And another area of really extreme vulnerability is the next stage is how do you protect everything while it's running at the same time? And that gets into a whole range of adding confidential computing to it. So you need the whole range of capabilities. Um, one of the things we take a look at slightly differently in the confidential computing is we look at, it at the entire computing stack. So when we look at kind of, when I say a computer center in a box, we look at how do you secure everything from the hardware that's sitting there. Maybe it needs to be the whole box needs to be tamper proof because it's sitting in an isolated environment. The actual circuit boards, how can you not break in through there, through the BIOS, taking a look at the virtualization layer, through the application, through the data. Every, the, every single piece in that stack kind of needs to be protected as well while it's running. So once you start protecting everything from, from the external hardware tamper resistant all the way through the data in one place, you, you start to look at, as I said before, almost kind of a computer center in a box and you can add various degrees of computing power as long as you could place it um, in various locations and, and you have that almost, you have that ubiquitous computing power. And that's what's happening is all of these kinds of uh, computing power is really moving more and more to the edge. And what you get to see is a lot of these kinds of security capabilities to protect it as well, because they don't always have the benefit of sitting behind in an extremely secure IT environment. They're sitting more out in the open more so that they need to be self-contained as far as the security is with it um, at, the same, at the same time. So Thank hopefully you. at a high level that kind of clarifies it a little bit quickly. And back to you, Doran. Thank you. Um, so I would like, before we move uh, to the to the Q and A, uh, I would like to say thank you to everyone for their insights and really wonderful discussion. Obviously, we we think you know in some things we went deeper than others, and but I think in our discussions, it's a really good taste um, of the subject. Uh, but very fascinating, and you know, the more I read about AI and, and following this discussion, I'll definitely do some more reading. Um, there's a lot to learn and there's a lot of aspects to it in different industries. Um, I hope the audience also uh, found this very useful and we'll go, there's a few questions we can ask them uh, from the Q&A. Um, and one of the things we saw um, is that the question that came from uh, is do you see any privacy issue with AI and machine learning, especially with face biometrics? So we did speak about privacy, but on face biometrics, uh, does anyone want to take a go with this specific question? I'll, I'll, David? I'll start, and I know there were others, you know, yeah. from their perspective. I mean, in a way, we did touch upon that um, when we do that, when we talked about the um, the optimism <laughs> of, of the trouble, but the... The issue comes down to more, there's both a technological thing that the technology needs to be able to support the privacy to say, you know, stop people from getting it and making sure only the people who actually need it can, whether you're sharing information or it's just for an individual. Um, the, other, but the, the other aspect is the policy 
stuff is what are the policies and the biometric and face recognitions you will definitely see in different societies people having different policies and so the same ai will both have the capability of protecting your privacy and not protecting your privacy and i believe a lot of it is going to come down to making sure the enabling technology is there and then a lot of discussion on the policy Thank you, David. Um, I see we had an earlier question about uh, uh, ecological impact, and you know, I'm, I'm guessing in some cases AI can improve procedures and so on. But there's a question about the ecological impact, about uh, um, and and big data. Um, does anyone want to take a go at that? Uh, I I can take a stab at Andron for that particular sure. uh, the ecological impact. So I believe that, okay, the, these kind of uh, problems are the modern day problems. So definitely these are the challenges. Uh, we want everything personalized. We want like processing all those kind of a large data. We want one of the best recommendation. We want like all the support from machines, but we are not ready to pay the cost. So I believe that, okay, hey, um, nobody actually uh, envisioned these kind of the challenges um, that, that might come. Definitely there were some, some options or some solutions that a uh, few of the companies came out with. Uh, Microsoft tried uh, this project Netic where they actually submerged a small data center into, uh, into the sea and tested out that, okay, yes, if that will be more ecological and it can perform at, at exactly the similar kind of performance as that of a data center on, on ground. So it became a successful experiment. I believe that okay, this day before yesterday, they updated some of the metrics that yes, the total number of failures are almost one eighth of uh, of a similar data center on the ground. I believe some more innovative solutions might be coming up so that the overall impact on the ecology will be calmed down. Uh, I believe that, okay, right now, the concept of big data has gone away. There is no more big data. People have started already talking about the quality of data so, so that we do not need all the lot of the data to process. So I believe that, okay, moving forward, the low data will be needed to build new models and all the requirements to store all the data processing, those kind of a large models those requirements will go down. So there's a lot of research going on. So I believe that, okay, in a nutshell, things will improve. Okay, but that's, again, uh, very helpful. And uh, I think it's also about balances. Um, this has been a really interesting discussion. We are uh, even beyond our, ti our time uh, limits, but this happens with great uh, conversation. I think for sure we need another discussion and uh, very much would like to see um, all of you uh, join us in one of our next discussions. I'll summarize and say this is, was not only interesting, I think only for, for, for the audience, but for me personally. Um, and we would be, you would be able to, be, to find this full discussion by next week on uh, YouTube and on LinkedIn channel. And, um, and you can find for any other question, you can follow up with hubsecurity.com on our social channels. I'd like to personally thank each one of our speakers today. Thank you for contributing to the discussion and joining us today. Uh, Priyanka, Doron, Sanjeev, Siddharth, and Nitin. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for the audience who stayed with us and we're here for this discussion. Um, thank you very much and I hope to see you all next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank, thank you all. Thank you, sir. Thank you everyone. Bye-bye.